So here, here's my question. Why do you think it's called primer? Why do you think they called it that? Um, doesn't it have something to do with them being like amateurs or something? How? Like, like, like in what way? It's like a primer on like time travel. There was something in the commentary. Like he, he explained why, but I, I can't remember exactly. I think it's called primer because of like the like the prime timeline. That's why I think it's called primer. Oh, okay. Because it's like a, a mix on the timelines. That's what I think. Prime timeline. Because you know like the so like the original character would be called like Aaron Prime and Abe uh, Prime, oh. right? And then the others are primers. Okay. But I also don't know because I don't I'm sure there's an actual reason that it's called that, but I can't really make it the connection myself as to I, what it be. I can't gleam it. Like much of the movie, I cannot gleam it from just <laughs> looking at it. From I'd, I'd it have now. to dig into multiple Reddit threads and and explanatory videos to figure self, it out. Self-exploration, of course. This and watching the movie like 40 times. It's it, This is a fucking dance movie. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. So I, I guess we'll, we'll get into it then. Um, Welcome to Drunk Duck Center Club. Hello and welcome. Hello and welcome. And welcome. Yes. That's Are you using the template? Oh my God. <laughs> I am using the template. Somebody here is not using the template <laughs> and that person is not me. Uh, hello and welcome to Drunk Duck Cinema Club. We're here at the pond doing our, our bi-weekly, bi-weekly podcast. podcast. I'm your host, Michael. Puglisi. Puglisi. And I'm your other host, Ali Darling. This week's movie is called Primer. Primer, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) (laughs) That's That's the the only tagline for this movie. That's the only tagline there is. This movie fucking hurts my brain. Yeah. Um, So what did you think of it? I thought it was... uh, Okay, honestly, the first time, I didn't really know what to make of it. Like, I was so confused. Yeah. Um... But after kind of dissecting it a little bit, I started to see the brilliance of it. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, when you dive into the movie, the making of the movie a little more, you realize that this movie was made for next to nothing. Yeah, exactly. And just the sheer quality to budget ratio is insane. Yeah. Um. So I... When I first watched this movie, found it very confusing, but very interesting as well, which I think I'm totally willing to sit through confusion if I remain interested, like definitely. Mm-hmm. So and then when I watched it the second time, uh, I actually found it to be sort of uplifting because you want it's the type of movie you want to watch again. You want to tell people about it. Yeah. And it's the type of movie, and I saw somebody say this, it's the type of movie that you watch and you're like, now I want to make movies. Like, it's very inspiring in that way where you're just like, what a cool idea. I want to do that. It's like a super cool idea that, I mean, when you look at it, it seems like all it took was a garage, a box, and a camera. Yeah, exactly. fuck, I could do that. Yeah. Um, Especially now. That's the other thing. It was made in 2004. Yeah. So what we have available to us now is very different. Like there's so little CGI in this movie because I couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, like that just becomes constantly easier and easier to do. So. Yeah, that's true. Like there's plenty of like, I don't know, indie or low budget movies, even on YouTube that use tons of like make, they they use make after it effects, yeah. like in special effects and yeah. stuff. But yeah, this is just this is a dude in a 16 millimeter film camera. Yeah. <laughs> um. 
but uh, okay, let's uh, let's give people some context, I guess, of sure. uh, Primer. So, uh, Primer's uh, 2004 science fiction movie, directed, produced, written, and starring Shane and Cruz. musically scored by and musically <laughs> scored by, and uh, I'm sure among a billion other things, yeah. uh, Shane Carruth. Who stars as Aaron, an engineer, who along with his friend and fellow engineer, Abe, played by David Sullivan, supplement their day jobs with a tech startup in Aaron's garage. So here's here's an interesting factoid about that, though. Um, Apparently, Carruth did not always intend to cast himself as Aaron. And he ended up doing it because he said, and I quote, he said that... It was too hard to get actors who would not load each line with drama. <laughs> right. Because, right. like, he was going for, like, a very, like, dry physicist. He was going for there wasn't a movie being shot. Like, he yeah. wasn't going for acting. He was just going for, like, I'm just going to have a camera in this room while you guys are doing this, which it definitely has. It has that vibe of being very realistic. Yeah. So he just got tired of dealing with people's dramatic yes. bullshit and was like, fuck it. I'll do it. Yeah, I'm, I think I remember hearing something like, he said something like, I've already memorized a bunch of the script anyways. I may so. as well just be in the movie. Yeah. 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 I love it that he just seems to have this attitude where it's just like, fuck it, I'll do it. I'll just do everything. It's fine. Yeah. Um, so while Aaron and Abe are conducting research to try and reduce the effects of gravity on an object. Which to is make not it lighter, obvious, by the way. Which is not obvious. Um, the two accidentally discover time travel. Yep. Whoopsies. Yeah. Um, like, when you say it out loud like that, it sounds kind of dumb, but... It sounds kind of gimmicky, right? Like a lot of time travel movies do. It sounds very gimmicky. But he manages to make it in a way that is not gimmicky at all. It feels real. Like it feels yeah. like if time travel were going to be discovered, it'd that be would like be how. that. It'd be by accident by just some guys in a garage somewhere. Yeah. Um, so it's impossible to talk about how Primer came to be without talking more about Shane Carruth and his background. Carruth. Worked briefly as an engineer, but was unhappy with his career choice and decided to try his hand at filmmaking. Over the course of three years, he created a lesson plan for himself to learn screenwriting, directing, and cinematography, sound mixing, editing, and acting. Jesus Christ. The inspiration for Primer came when he was reading a book about discoveries and found that two things stood out. That the discoveries that turns out to be the most valuable is usually dismissed as a side effect... Yep. And second, prototypes almost never include neon lights. And yeah, he's like, they don't look like that. They look like big metal boxes yeah. like this one. These big, like, industrial. The scene when they're at the CNC machine and the guy is cutting out their box for them is so realistic to me because I've, like, I when I was in school, you have a lot of CNC machines running to build a lot of the, like, prototypes for people's projects and stuff. And that's exactly yeah. what it's like. It's just like you show up with a diagram and the guy operating the machine is like, yeah, I'll make that, like, whatever. And then he just like punches it in and doesn't give a fuck. And you're just standing there like, I have spent so much time and money to get this done. Like Jesus. And the guy and like whoever's operating it is just like, oh, it's another day in the whatever. Right? Thank you, sir. Yeah. And you're just standing there like very stressed. And that whole scene was just like very close to home. So Carruth spent over a year developing and writing primer screenplay and immersed himself in physics to make the technical conversations between the main characters as realistic as possible. After struggling to find the right actor to play, Aaron Carruth decided to play the role himself. <laughs> he conducted 
He conducted month-long rehearsals going over scenes hundreds of times because he didn't have the budget to buy more 16 millimeter film for retakes. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it works. Yeah, I mean, that's one way to go about doing it. Well, I believe when I was looking at the ratio, it was something like there was less than a minute of film they didn't use yeah. or something crazy like that. So I was looking into the shooting ratio. The shooting ratio, by the way, is um, it's the amount of film shot to the amount of film that actually ends up in a movie. And to give you an idea, um, so Tarantino's Hateful Eight, 30 to 1 shooting ratio. Yeah. The Martian, 104 to 1. Deadpool, 308 to 1. But didn't Deadpool have to like restart because someone died? Uh, I thought. Yeah. uh, Like, I think a stuntman died. Yeah. But um, still, though. But Primer's shooting ratio, one source I found said a 2 to 1 shooting ratio. Another source I saw was a 1.04 to 1 shooting ratio. Jesus Christ. Like, they did not waste anything on this yeah so the film was shot over a period of five weeks in dallas texas on a budget of seven thousand dollars like you can imagine the production crew was small with people playing uh multiple roles behind the scenes they relied on the homes of friends and families for their locations and the movie spent two years in post-production with crew reportedly quitting the project three or four times out of frustration I also read that he was very hard to deal with in terms of getting a production, getting it released, like dealing with the deal that would put it out in theaters. Apparently it was like almost a year of negotiating because he didn't want to release like a lot of his ownership of the film. So he wouldn't accept. So they would agree like, yeah, that's what we're going to do. And they'd be like, no, 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 we're not going to do it like that. We're going to do like this. So what you're trying to tell me is the guy who wrote edited, directed, and starred in his movie. And made all the music for. And made all the music is a bit of a control freak. He's attached to the movie and starred in it? After deciding everyone else sucked ass? I don't know. That sounds like fake news. Yeah, who knows? Um, So I think one of the most interesting things about the movie is just trying to understand what the fuck happened. Okay, okay. But wait, let me me go through the reception, though. Let me go through. You want to do the reception first? I want I want to talk a little bit about how it looks first before we get into that, because I think okay. how it looks makes a big deal. So one of the things that was interesting about it and I think speaks to how it was made very much. I, I saw a review that said the movie never looks cheap because every shot looks like it must look like basically saying yeah, it wasn't made for a lot of money, but it doesn't seem cheap when you watch it. It doesn't seem like a high budget movie, but it doesn't seem cheap. And they said, you know, and then you start thinking like, why is that? Like, what is it about it that makes it seem like authentic to what it is, even though it's not necessarily uh, a high budget movie and you think maybe it should look better. But I, I, I found something that was interesting in the way that they describe it. And they, it's very much like an aesthetic. And I think similar to some of the other movies we've looked at, like the aesthetic can be a major plot point. So in this particular aesthetic, they talk about how everything is distinct in the way that it is very flat and it's very overexposed and every shot, like none of it has a lot of depth. None of them are from very far away. And a lot of that is maybe limitations based on what kind of filming material or equipment they have. But it's also, it creates a very uh, consistent look to the movie throughout the entire movie. Every shot looks the same. And I feel like it's similar to, you know, when you, you saw the CSI shows where you'd be like, 
I know I'm watching CSI Miami because it has this orange tinge to it. So even right. if I just flick through the channels, I'll recognize it. And I feel like primer is the same. Like it's got a very distinct look. And I feel like if you were flipping through the channels on the TV or something, you would notice that it was primer because you'd be like, that's what primer looks like. Yeah, it, it has that look. It's very like grainy, overexposed. Fluorescent lighting, yeah. like nothing very beautiful. There's nothing beautiful in the movie. Like even the characters are not portrayed in like a beautiful way. Like there's nobody who's like exceptionally attractive in the movie. Mm. There's nothing like distinct about it, but that gives it a bit of distinctness as well. So it's like, I just found it was interesting because I don't think the aesthetic jumps out at you. But when I watched it on the second viewing, I was like, this movie is very distinct and it's very interesting. It's very impressive that he was able to get his style down on the first try. Yeah. yeah. I think it's a part of that obsessiveness, right? Like if everything is storyboarded. And I think you're also thinking like, what can I use? Right? Like he's like, what do I have in abundance? Suburban houses, industrial parks, and like fluorescent lighting. Like that's all I have. All right. Do we want to get into the plot? Okay. Yep. All right. So dissecting the plot for this is pretty tricky. Um, I have a simplified plot explanation from a Reddit explain like I'm five thread. Which is um, definitely explain more like you're eight or at least 14. At least 14, <laughs> 15. Um, and it's the film, it's the film as we view it for the first time. So there, there's okay. a whole bunch of like crazy timeline shit, but this is just the way we see it. Um, <clears throat> so Aaron and Abe are performing experiments in Aaron's garage. The father of Abe's girlfriend, Rachel, or friend, Rachel. Abe's sort of girlfriend, Rachel. Abe's sort of girlfriend, Rachel, is a wealthy investor named Thomas Granger, whom they're hoping to impress with a new invention. After running some experiments, Abe, Abe is able to deduce, to deduce that they've accidentally built a small time travel box. He builds a larger scale box that he can fit inside and uses it to travel back in time from evening to the morning, confirming his theory, Abe shares this information with Aaron. Mm -hmm. So I think here it's important to talk about how time travel works in this movie. Yeah. So in Primer's version of time travel, the time machine acts like a save point in a video game yeah. where time travels can only go back as far as when the time travel machine was first turned on. So the time when the machine turns on, that's your save point. So you can go yes. back to when you turn it on, but you can't go further back than that. So if somebody turns it on at 10 a.m. on January 1st, they can only travel back that far. And they have to wait however long the machine was running to travel back that far. They have to wait in the box Wait as in well. the box. So if you turn, on the, turn the machine on at 10 a.m. on January 1st and you climb into the box at 6 p.m. to start your journey back, you're going to be sitting in that box for eight hours yep. to travel back to 10 a.m. And there is... There is some them questions about this, which we can get into later, but there is a, a methodology to get when you get in and get out of the box. That's very important that we see. Yes, so that's right. It's definitely got like a method. So it's not just uh, I can go back to any time I feel like within when the box has been on. It's mm -hmm. when I have to go back exactly when I turn it on. Basically, there's consequences. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So the time travel portion of the movie appears to take place over a couple of days. We see the guys testing their machine following a simple routine. Start the machine in the morning, go to a hotel, look up stocks, return to the machine in the evening, enter it to travel back in time, and then trade stocks to make money based on the knowledge they gained about the markets throughout the day. 
Mm-hmm. They do this together a bunch of times with no problems. Then something strange happens and things get wicked fucking complicated. Yeah. So one night, Aaron and Abe find Thomas Granger disheveled waiting outside of Aaron's house in the middle of the night. He's unwell and he slips into a coma. Aaron and Abe deduce that sometime in the future, Granger used the box to go back in time to prevent a catastrophic or fatal event. And that this interaction with the time-traveling Granger permanently prevents Granger from entering the box, creating a paradox, the ripple effects of which are unknown to Aaron and Abe. After this incident, Abe decides the box is too dangerous. We then learn that Abe created a fail-safe time machine box that was turned on before telling Aaron about the time machine for the first time and and has been having it run this entire time. Yeah, so he sets that up so that just in case everything goes to shit, he can go back to before he told anybody and then nobody knows, essentially. So then he essentially is trying to take all the responsibility of it. Yes. So whoever finds out won't find out, basically. So Abe... Uh, uses the box with the intention of traveling back in time to prevent him from telling Aaron about the machine in the first place and to prevent from and to pre- prevent them from conducting their time travel experiments yeah. at all. However, dun, dun, dun. we learn that Aaron <laughs> found out about Abe's failsafe box and has already used it to go back in time that he replaced Abe's failsafe with one set for 10 after. minutes before. 10 minutes before Abe started his so that he could go back even further yes. than Abe did if he wanted to. Um, d- does he set it before? No, I think he's, he sets Abe's later. Than yeah, his. whatever. He yeah. sets it so that like one of he all he has control now yeah, because he, he doesn't want to end up not knowing about time travel. That's what yeah. he wants. So basically yeah. Aaron f- found out about Abe's fail safe and used it to get the upper hand. Yeah. Um, so when Abe. Oh, okay. Where are we here? <laughs> you know how many fucking uh, summaries of this plot that I read where they literally pause and they're like, okay, here's where it gets confusing. But they do that like six <laughs> times throughout the plot summary. And I'm like, it's always been confusing. Oh my God. I'm so lost. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you can't keep saying Aaron that. found out about Abe's fail, <laughs> fail safe block ha- has already used it to go back in time. Right. Get the and then hand. Aaron replaced Abe's fail safe with one set for after... <laughs> Fuck. Aaron travels back in time using the fail safe and drugs and replaces the original Aaron, replacing him yeah, in so the Yeah, so basically timeline. what happens is Abe goes back to try to put everything the way it was, but then he finds out that Aaron realized he was going to trick him or like keep him out of the loop and was like, no, mm-hmm. I'm going to go back. But then of course, anytime either of them go back, they have to deal with their self who's normally there, right? Because mm-hmm. the way they've been doing it where it's been working is they've been setting the box and then leaving and being completely out of the way for their other selves to do their business. Right. And that doesn't work if they're coming back to change something. Cause then they have to subdue their former selves uh-huh. so that they can actually move on. So, so at some point, Aaron traveled back to back in time using the fail safe and replaced the Aaron and his timeline storing him in the attic. Yep. Um, and that, and the Aaron we've been seeing throughout most of the movie with an earpiece is actually a future version of Aaron. Who already knows. Who, uh, yeah, who's already happening. used the failsafe box yeah. and recorded the timeline's events. So the other the other thing, and we can maybe talk about it a little bit, is the the film the fail or the recording. Like that that would take more than one time. That's the thing. Like I think you're 
led to believe that the version of Aaron you see who's been recording the conversations is just the second version, but it would take more than one time to record everything. Ooh, interesting. It would definitely take him multiple takes. Anyway, we could talk about that. So at the end of the movie, future versions of Aaron and Abe briefly reconcile to perfect the disarmament of a gun gunman at a party before going their separate ways. At this point, we, the viewers, are aware of at least three Aarons and two Abes yep. coexisting in the same timeline. Before we talk about the plot some more, yeah, because God knows uh, there's still a lot of things uh, that were glossed over that we could cover in more detail. Yeah. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about the reception? Okay, so um, the reception of this movie, so it obviously made what would be a filmmaker's, like, wet dream of a response, right? Because it cost about that $7,000 to make and it grossed about half a million in total worldwide. Damn. So the return is insane. The opening weekend, it made four times what it cost to make. So that's just its opening weekend. It made $28,000. All right. Pretty good, right? That's not a lot of money, but it's pretty good in return based on what they spent. Um, so like you said, there's, uh, they were able to make it for $7,000 by not paying anybody to make it basically. Right. They don't pay for anything. So he did most of the work himself. He did the editing, this filming, the music, the production, the everything, you know, the only crew members they had were also actors. There's only five people who helped make the movie. Yeah. Right. And then everything else was free props. So they were able to film in people's houses, random businesses. They were able to borrow the oxygen tanks from someplace. His like, parents did the catering. His parents did all the food for everybody, <laughs> which is like super adorable. And honestly makes me think he was living with his parents when they were making it. I mean, come on, drop There's out of school. Chance. Come on. Anyways. So anyhow, so it really did well. And it did well in almost the only way that you can. But And the other thing that I found interesting is when I was reading about it, people said, you can make a movie for less than $10,000 now. But 15 years ago, it was a lot harder, right? So And shooting on film, too. Film's yeah. fucking expensive. Yeah. And I mean, I remember, I remember reading an uh, interview with David Sullivan who said, yeah, I really wish we would have had 10000 because then we could have a, done a few more days of shooting. And it's like, that's not even that much, man. Like $3,000 more? Like, holy. Anyways. So they, they definitely like really put what they could into it and they got a great return. Um, and Shane Carruth became like this like quintessential kind of indie darling, big right? Big deal, yeah. Well, so he won the Grand Jury Prize at the Sundance Film Festival in 2004 when it came out, which was a big deal. Um, he also won what's called the Alfred P. Sloan Prize for films dealing with science and tech. And he won Best Writer and Director at another film festival, the Nantucket Film Festival in 2004. Uh, cleaning up. And he won, won Best Feature at the London International Festival of Science Fiction in 2005. So lots of winning. So especially it's, it's like a critical success. Like they yeah. were into it, eh? Yeah. And then what was interesting as well was it got a, uh, the, part that, the part that I was talking about where the film never looks cheap, that's actually a review by Roger Ebert, oh. who is the first, the first film critic that ever won a Pulitzer Prize for criticism. Yeah. So also a big deal essentially, right? So it got a lot of people, not everybody liked it, but it got a lot of big attention and it, it got a lot of praise from big, big names. So it actually was received very well by critics, I would say. Um, the only real criticisms of it I could find were the same criticisms you see of people watching it where they're like, it's needlessly complicated or it's too confusing or you shouldn't have to watch it twice or whatever. But overall, reception-wise, it was very well received. I okay, mean, so if, you said you have more plot? You have more plot points? So before we do that, let's take 
a brief plot break and talk about our cocktail. Sure. I'm um, almost done it. It's delicious. Oh man, me too. I fucking love this drink. All right. So, um, we had realized that we hadn't done, um, a sour kind of drink. And Which is we, all I want. Sour drinks. So we decided, uh, or I decided to try and do, uh, a gin fizz kind of, uh, inspired beverage inspired thing. Um, but I wanted to, yeah, take... So what, what I did is I took the basic components of a gin fizz. So you have your... Um, gin. Your gin. <laughs> your... Uh, egg white. Uh, egg white. Lemon juice. Some kind of sweetener. Mm-hmm. Um, and soda water. And whatever. soda water. But then I also wanted to kind of incorporate the dominant colors of the movie yeah. into the drink. The blue so, fluorescence. So I thought of the blue fluorescence. So I put some blue curacao. Curacao in there, mm-hmm. and I also kind of thought of like the warm, kind of pinkish orange colors, the sunrisey tones. Yeah. Um, so I grabbed some grapefruit juice too. Mm-hmm. So okay, here's the full recipe for this. So it's one part gin, one part blue curacao, one part grapefruit juice, one part simple syrup, an egg white. You stick all that in a shaker. You shake it with some ice. And complain you, the whole time. Complain the whole time. Yeah. Pour it into, strain it into a glass with some ice cubes in there. Top it off with soda, stir that shit, put a little lemon wedge. Lemon wedge. Lemon wedge garnish on there. And then, uh, yeah, you, you sip away. And man, I'm not going to lie. Like, I've made to drink. a lot of these. Did you? Yeah. Oh, nice. Uh, it's very good. It's very sweet. Um, my favorite thing about gin uh, fizz kind of style beverages or beverages with egg white in them is that their egg white is a lot sweeter than you would expect it to be. Yeah. Um, and it's just very frothy and delicious. Yeah, the amount of froth you get from the egg white, it's awesome. Yeah. Um, Be now, careful if you order a gin fizz in a restaurant because they may not make it with egg white. Just so. Yeah, that's Sometimes true. It's they, just a sour lemonade that tastes like you put egg in it, but you didn't. I mean, it's still all right without the it's egg white. It's not good. <laughs> okay, <laughs> divided opinions. I will say um, I had like two of these back to back in one night. Mm. And I got a fucking wicked hangover. You have a low tolerance for sugar, I'll tell you that for sure. I guess so. Yeah. Um, well, I found out that like literally all ciders have like a kajillion grams of sugar. And I'm like, that's where those headaches come from. But anyway. <laughs> that's all you drink is cider. I know. It's bad for you. Yeah. All right. You give up soda and took down cider. It's not good. So for names. So the one I came up was the Fain, Fain, oh, I really should have looked up how to pronounce this fucking guy's name. Feynman Fizz. The Feynman Fizz? Feynman. Well, how do you okay. spell it? F-E-Y-N. The Feynman Fizz. Feynman Fizz. Who's Feynman? So, that, that's the scientist, right? That he based a lot of it on. Yes. Yeah. So um, the time travel mechanics in the movie are inspired by Feynman diagrams by a physicist right. named yeah. Richard Feynman. Richard Feynman, yeah. Who, um, it, it was something about interactions uh, basically looking the same forward yeah, and Yeah, so there's in diagrams that are similar and they're kind of like a parabolic diagram, So they, but they look similar going forwards and backwards and his idea being that what's the difference if you do forwards or backwards? And that's how they start explaining the little clip that, uh, that you had sent me. If you look that up, they use those diagrams when they're showing how it works. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we can put that online. It's cool. So that's, uh, I guess that's that what we good, have. That's a good name. Yeah. Fan Man Fizz. All right. The Fen Fizz. Fen Fizz. Cool. Um, okay. Um, so for this movie, I kind of wrote up a plot 
frequently asked questions. Okay. Um, so how about we go through some of those? Maybe we can try and clear up the most confusing parts of this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened to Thomas Granger? So um, in the film's commentary, Kruth actually offers an explanation for... Um, about for how, Granger? For Granger. But I, <laughs> this is funny. He okay. offers a possible explanation. Can he you doesn't do even, that? Can so, you okay, do that? <laughs> okay. Here, here is, here's the story from uh, Shane Kruth. So the question is, how does Granger know about the box and why does he go back in time? So we don't know. Kruth confirms in the audio commentary for oh the movie God. that there is no concrete evidence in the film that suggests oh how Cranger found out oh my God. about the machine. Oh my God. However, Kruth does offer a possible explanation oh for why. God. Presumably, in the timeline that this future Granger is from, Aaron and Abe go through with their plan to punch Aaron's boss and something goes horribly wrong. Kruth suggests that Rachel's ex-boyfriend may have killed her. And Abe, remembering he's left a machine running before the incident and knowing that he could do something to prevent prevent this, leads him to tell Granger about the machine and for some reason Granger uses it um, to, to go, go back, back to the to past save his himself. Daughter. Um, yeah, to stop whatever went wrong from happening. Some possibly, possibly just by watching over Aaron and Abe to make sure they do stop the gunmen at the party. Right. But... And this is I, this is kind of my own conjecture and from stuff um, cobbled together from internet sources here. Uh, but Granger, too, he fucks up. He's spotted by Aaron and Abe. Yeah. And this interaction permanently changes the course of future events, creating a paradox where the origi- original Granger Can't is never told the about the box and yeah. never enters the box. But this Granger, too, still exists, even so though he shouldn't. So you think he goes, falls into the coma because of the paradox? What's going on at the end with the multiple Aaron's and Abe's? So I think that one's pretty simple in my, from my perspective, that one seems quite simple. So essentially there's an original Aaron who knows nothing about the timeline, right? So there's that guy before Abe tells him. So the start of the movie before Abe tells him about what happened. Then there's the Aaron that comes back in the failsafe the first time and has to subdue the Aaron who's never time traveled because he wants to take his place. And then there's the third Aaron who comes back again to change something else who then has to deal with the second Aaron. So there's three of them because he keeps trying to change something. And what ends up happening is at the end of the movie, the reason there's three of them is because one is still drugged in the attic. Mm -hmm. One has is living his life. Like one has, Aaron number two has taken the place of the Aaron who's never time traveled. He's the one who drugs the original Aaron. Yeah. And then he manages to convince the other Aaron who comes to leave. Yeah. So he says, I deserve this life. I came back to save it. Aaron, Aaron two is the one who's convinced to leave. Yeah. And the oldest Aaron, the one who's lived the longest and come back or whatever the hell. And you know what? The reasoning's really funny too. It's like Aaron three convinces Aaron two. They come to this agreement where Aaron 3 is more invested. That's the reasoning given. Yeah, and it's like, what does that even mean? It's like, it's like, it's like that, that's very gentlemanly. Um, they but, come to an agreement after having a fucking fist fight, so it's not like it's very gentlemanly. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> but still, it just seems like, it's like, well, you know what? You've already gone through I, this shit twice. So I so. think that... Um, the Aaron who gets convinced to leave is the one who's trying to take advantage of the time travel machine. 
right? He's the one who's trying to use it for his own gain, for his own benefit. And I think he's the one who's selfish. And that's well, what that's yeah. what can draw him to be convinced to leave. Because it's like, you want to take advantage of the time travel machine? Why don't you just go do that? Just go do it somewhere else. I mean, and he sees where he's going to end up. Because Aaron 3 is just future him. Yep. Um, so that's how you end up with the three Aaron's. And then you have a second Abe because he comes back in time after the whole Granger incident, yeah. gasses his original self, mm-hmm. um, and then goes to meet Aaron with the uh, earpiece yep. in the park. When Abe goes back in time the first time and talks to Aaron, who we can assume is not the first Aaron, it's one of the other Aaron's that he's talking to on the bench. With the earpiece, yeah. Yes. Why does Aaron still answer with his recorded selves responses, even though Abe doesn't say what he would be prompting him to say those things? You mean, are you talking about when Abe like passes out, right? Yeah. So Abe comes up to him and he's supposed to say something along the lines of, Hey, I'll show you this and this and this. And he says, are you insinuating that every, any day is not busy, but he doesn't actually prompt him. I have an explanation for that. Okay. So after the whole Granger Thing, yeah, they both independently came to the same conclusion. They're yeah. just like, oh man, things are fucked. We got to go back to the start. Yeah, and neither one of them was expecting a time traveling version of them to be there. Oh, so Aaron, uh, Aaron was not expecting Abe to go back in time. Then no, of course. So no. that's why Aaron was just going through the motions. But I find that crazy because you think he would still. So you think he's that checked out from the reality that he's just not even paying attention to what Abe's doing? Yes, I think so, because he has the upper hand, right? That, at the same time, though, if it was only my second time through the same day, I would think, like, that That only makes me think there's been more and more errands, because it's like, if he's that checked out, that he doesn't even notice that Abe doesn't say anything to him. That's possible. And then he talks back to him. This must be, like, his 30th time through this day. He's also just, like, fucked up from all the time traveling, too, right? Yes, that's a whole other, what's wrong with them? Why are they like that? Yeah. But... I don't know. It just, it seemed really weird to me. It's like, why does he, why does he respond as if Abe is acting normal when he's not? It just seems really weird. It seems very like, like I said, it seems like he's checked out of right. his it's like, life. It's like, oh, this has worked a bunch of times before. So he just, he's just going through the motions. Yeah. Okay, and then that's when Abe collapses, he's like, oh, wait a minute. Like <laughs> something's wrong. Uh-oh. Yeah. So anyway, and then he has to tell him about the story, but anyhow. Okay, so okay, let's the party. The let's party. get in with how the the party yeah. um, uh, <laughs> ties in everything. So after Aaron three explains to Abe two after he collapses mm-hmm. what he's been up to, Aaron continu- continues on with his schedule dictated by his recordings. They turn on a machine before the party so that they can witness the gunmen incident at the party once more or maybe dozens of times Who knows? To, to create the perfect scenario where they safely disarm the gunman and make sure he's put in jail, possibly preventing the future event that causes um, Granger to, to learn come about back, the box. Yeah. Um, it's implied in a conversation between Abe one and Aaron one that Aaron one had originally subdued the gunman but in a way that was seen as reckless by a bunch of people. Yeah. Like he just goes up and grabs a gun out of his hands. That's what they're talking about when they're at like the fountain or whatever. And the other thing that's interesting about that is Aaron or Abe says, don't tell me you did something like that for Rachel. Like he says to Aaron, like you have a wife and a kid, you have like Karen Lauren, like how could you do this 
and like put them in jeopardy for somebody like Rachel. So it's very obvious that Abe doesn't really care too much about Rachel. And I mean, it's kind of alluded that, you know, when they're talking about Granger, the Thomas Granger in the first place, they're like, you know, he Thomas Granger's only there because his daughter's there and his daughter's only there because Abe's there. So I think his Rachel likes Abe, but I don't think Abe really cares about Rachel. Yeah. And Aaron has this whole thing where he thinks Abe's like jealous of his, his suburban, suburban life. Yeah. 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 Um, and that's basically what they're talking about at the end of the airport where Aaron's like, well, why don't you just like make a copy of my family yeah. and live with them? And Abe's like, I'll fucking kill you. And I'll kill myself. <laughs> yeah. Um. So that's kind of all I have for like plot. I, I hope it. that made it clearer. It. Holy fuck. All right. Let's uh, maybe get to a couple of. Fun film facts. Okay, so fun. The first fun one is one that I talked about when we were watching it. The Russian pen story. So essentially early in the movie, Abe and Aaron are just chatting about how, you know, complexities doesn't always necessarily oh, make things good. And they're yeah. saying that, oh, do you remember how NASA spent like a kajillion dollars making a space pen and then Russia solved it by using a pencil? And people always quote that story saying, oh, you know, like it's a great example of like overthinking a simple problem. But... The real reason that NASA made the space pen was because graphite is combustible and was causing fires on their space stations. So you can't bring the pencils. So the pencils don't work. So the pencil was not the response to the pen. The pen was response to the pencil. And then NASA, once they made the space pen, started selling it to everybody for like $3. So anyways, bullshit. What a crock of shit. (laughs) One star. One star. Yeah. (laughs) Terrible movie. And I mean, who, who knows? But the, I mean, it's just, it's a silly story. Um, the other fun thing that I found was my all time favorite quote, uh, from the movie, which every single time I watch it makes me laugh. And it is, are you hungry? I haven't eaten since later this afternoon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a good one. It's like, there's like no humor in the movie, but they just slip that in there. That particular spot is funny. Um, Okay, another fun thing that I found is that when they're playing Scrabble in the hotel and Aaron uses the word evacipate, Mm -hmm. that is not a word. That's not a real word. And apparently um, people who watch the movie have accepted the word to mean undo the past just based on like kind of the building blocks of the word, but it's not actually a word. Evacipate. Oh. Yeah. Another point against Aaron. What I a know. dick. Who the fuck cheats at Scrabble? I know. I will. And I mean, a lot of people say that it's Aaron trying to check if Abe's going to challenge him because Abe's kind of a pushover. Mm. Right. But at the same time, it's like, I think Aaron's just a dick. It kind of seems like he's a bit of a dick. The only other fun thing that I found, which is definitely uh, super interesting and worth putting up on the website is a timeline that I found from a webcomic okay. that studied this. So there's a webcomic, um, XKCD that does a oh. whole bunch of like mathematic style, yeah. like math and physics and stuff. And he always does infographics and stuff, right? So he has an infographic for movies and the movies he has on there is Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, Jurassic Park, 12 Angry Men and Primer. And essentially the way the graphic works is it's the timeline and it shows the entire length of the movie on like a landscape. And then it shows the characters who are together, where they go, when they split apart. So movies like Lord of the Rings and Star Wars go all over the place and they're these huge complicated ones. This is the one for Primer. Oh, for fuck's sake. 
It's just a bunch of circles <laughs> going in no direction at all. And at the end of it, it's just a question mark. And that's it. So. Oh, anyway. man. I was, I was like getting super psyched for a very super helpful diagram. Well, and so the other diagram that I have is actually, oh, yeah. this is the most detailed one that I've I found. seen that one. I've looked at a lot of diagrams for that's this movie. That's the most detailed one I found. That's, if you have a more detailed one, we should put that one up. I think that's the best one I've come across. It's insane. So it is, let's see, it's nine separate blue bars with what has got to be at the very least about 1,500 to 2,000 words of text attached to them as, yeah. a, as a graphic. And it, it is took insane. me a long time to read through it. Insane. Okay, before we, we get for sure in, into the ratings, are, are we done? I think we're done talking about this movie, right? Yes. We've been jabbering on longer than normal, but um, I think it was kind of warranted in this in this case. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting movie, and um, I think the only final question that I have is why do they all keep their ties on in the garage? This is a fucking professional enterprise. It's not though. They're trying to make telling, it seem are like you it. Telling me that four dudes who wear ties all day long get out of work and leave the tie on. I have never seen that in my life. They're hardworking. They go straight to work. They, they don't do have time not. to take the ties oh my off. God. They have so much time. They Aaron don't has time have to times. tuck the tie into his buttons. He doesn't have time to take the tie off. He can do that while pontificating though. And we know it's not even a nice tie because Will makes fun of him for having a $3 tie. So I'm just saying. Well. At least loosen it, right? I mean, come uh, on. I mean, okay. Fair enough. Anyways. Um... I'm glad you're asking somebody's asking the hard questions here. It's an important question. All right, let's wrap this shit up. So for scares, we're going to give it one skull. Yeah. Because it just isn't that scary, although there is some existential dread, but Kisara, Kisara? Kisara? Kisara, Sara. Whatever. <laughs> I mean, that might not even be right, but you seem like you don't know, so I'm going to thank you. Just plot forwards. Uh, we're going to give it one blood drop for violence and gore because there's... No violence or gore. One person's ear bleeds one time. It does happen. Um, and then for overall quality, we're going to give it a hard four. Hard okay, four. not a hard four. Maybe like a, a, a heavy four. A heavy, I waited for. I waited for. Because yeah. this movie is super fucking interesting. I had a great time watching it and looking into all the little facts about it and just trying to decode what happened. I love telling people about this movie. I like um, watching it with people. Like, yeah. I think it's just every time I watch it, I like have a good time watching it. But I think there's a thin line between and what makes it not a five is that there's a thin line between watching something that confuses you and enjoying it and watching something that confuses you and enrages you. Yes. Right. Because killing of a sacred deer, confusing and enraging this confusing and enjoyable. Mm -hmm. So and it does straddle that line at times. Like, I, I'm thinking hard about the first time I watched it, like 20 minutes in. I don't think I'd, I had understood a single sentence anybody had said. No. Like, everything was just moving so fast, and they're talking so matter-of-factly. They're talking over each other, lots of jargon, and I'm just yeah. like, I don't know what the fuck's going on. Yeah. It's very much, again, you're very much a witness mm -hmm. to the movie. You're not necessarily meant... It's not catered to you at all, like I said. So it, it's weird to watch it like that, for sure. And everybody recommends watching it with subtitles as well, which we didn't, which I didn't do. That's smart. And it's, <laughs> you definitely miss stuff, right? So, yeah. And because, I mean, there's not a lot going on on the screen, you may as well be watching. That's true. Reading um, subtitles. Overall, though, a really great, unique science fiction movie. 
Um, if you want to see something that's a little different, you don't mind being kind of confused and doing some homework, then yep. this movie is definitely for you. It'll turn your brain to shit. It'll make your nose bleed. And, maybe um, your ear bleed. Maybe your ear bleed, too. It's probably my favorite time travel movie. So if you like time travel movies, it's definitely on the list. Yeah, right up there with Terminator. Back um, to the Future. Back to the Future. Bill and Ted. Looper? Eh. That was all right. Eh. All right. Well, anyways, that's been that. Um, <laughs> you can find us on our website, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Drunk Duck Cinema Club. 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 Um, rate us on iTunes. That's helpful. Yeah. Uh, please give us reviews. Five star. Five star. Five star. If you want to give us less than five star. Do that as well. That's fine. Yeah, actually, whatever. Um, all right. Keep on quacking in the free world. Ah.